Before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to talk today about some of the appearances of the Lord in Torah and where you can see Yeshua present in the Torah. It's, I think, a very interesting, <clears throat> interesting study. And I want to ask you to turn to a portion from last week, Genesis chapter 31, starting uh, in the third verse. <clears throat> and I've got a little cough here. It starts with this statement, the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives and I will be with you. So this was a moment when Jacob was still with uh, Laban or Levan and his family with his wife and extended family and the Lord is telling Jacob it's time to go back. Now is the time. And Jacob is recounting this and in verse 10, he describes this experience he had with the Lord. He said, in breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and I saw that the male goats were mating with a flock and they were streaked, speckled, or spotted. And then look at this. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I answered, Hineni, here I am. That's a good word to learn, Hineni. Say that with me, Hineni. Where are you? Hineni. Here I am. <clears throat> and he said to me, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Verse 13. This gets interesting. I am the God of Bethel, where you, you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. If you notice... Verse 11 says the angel of the Lord appeared, and he said. And verse 13 says, I am the God of Bethel. Now this confounds a lot of folks. But we're going to try to work through this. And it's very useful to look carefully at the text and to look at some of the, the ways that people understand this and compare that to a strong messianic understanding. <clears throat> now, in order to set the tone, I, I want to recount to you an experience a friend of mine had when he was in the Navy. By the way, welcome back, Maggie. It's always good when Navy folks are back yeah. on land yeah. with us. So a friend of mine was telling me about an experience he had when he started serving on a sub, a submarine. And he was a believer. He took his Bible with him, and he uh, was in his quarters. He opened up his Bible, and he, he was in shock because he had a, uh, a special Bible, and it, all of the words of Jesus disappeared. And he was looking at his Bible, and, and everything's in the New Testament there except the words of Jesus. They're gone. And 
And he had this terrible thought, you know, maybe I'm the only believer left. And the world has just changed. And this is a sign and I'm left behind. It was such a shock to him. Well, that wasn't the explanation. It turned out that they had red lights in the sleeping quarters. <laughs> and, and he had... He had one of those red letter editions of the Bibles. Y'all know what those are? <clears throat> so in the red light, the red letters of Jesus were gone. <laughs> Sometimes when we don't know what's going on, or we think we know what's going on, but we don't, we come up with explanations that are satisfying to us, but they're not correct. This friend of mine had a moment of terror because he's underwater in a sub with no communication with the outside world, and he just thought something apocalyptic was going on. And it wasn't good that he was in the sub in that situation. Well, he was so relieved when he went to regular light and his Bible was healed. <laughs> I, I thought about that because when we're looking at the stories in this week's Torah portion and some of the stories in the last week, as we just read, we have to come up with some ideas. How do we explain this? How do we make sense out of differing um, texts and uses of words? And what do we think is really going on here? And I know this, that if you think certain things are impossible, you will explain what happens differently. And so you may have red light theology that can't see certain things simply because of the light that, that you are looking at or through and may not even be aware of it. With that in mind, let's go to chapter 32, which describes another incident. And at this point, Jacob has, has gone on his way. He's, he's heading back home, if you will, and he's about to encounter his brother Esau. And remember, his, his mother said to, to Jacob, your brother wants to kill you, you need to leave town. And Jacob was gone for how long? 20 some years? And now he's coming back, and can you imagine, you get this great word from the Lord, it's time to come back. And you come back to the very thing that had made you leave in the first place. You come back to the conflict that's unresolved, you come back to the threat, you come back to the danger, to the uncertainty. That's what actually happened. Well, let's read Genesis 32, starting in verse one. It says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Machanaim, the two camps, the camp of heaven and earth. Verse three, Jacob sent messengers. Now here's something interesting. In the Hebrew, the word for messenger and the word for angel are identical. It's, it's one word based on malach. And 
translators have understood that verse 1 was speaking about angels who are messengers of God, where verse 3 is speaking about messengers of Jacob who are not angels. But there have been some interpreters over the years who have thought that the messengers in verse 3 are the angels in verse 1. So that Jacob is sending angels ahead of him to his brother Esau. There's reason not to follow that translation and to think that they are just human messengers. But in normal Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, the word messenger can be translated angel and it can be translated messenger as well, malach. Now let's go to verse 24. Verse 24 describes an interesting moment at night when Jacob is by himself and he's been anticipating the the confrontation with Esau. He thinks it's not going to go well. And so he's divided up his family into two groups, thinking that if Esau attacks one, the other will escape and at least some of them will survive. As well, he's thinking that maybe it will be okay because he's going to send a lot of gifts ahead. He's going to show honor and deference and respect to, um, to his brother, hopefully turning his heart. But in verse 24, we, we read about a really interesting moment. Jacob was left alone, and a man, in Hebrew it says ish, which means man, A man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that Jacob's hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go because it's daybreak. And Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Yisrael, because you have wrestled with God and with humans and you have overcome. Yisrael can mean to wrestle with God. It can also mean the prince of God. So this is a fascinating description. But I want you to to consider something. Who is this man? Who is this man? Now, the Targums, the translations of the Tanakh, of the Torah, into Aramaic, the traditional Targums, the most authoritative, translated something in verse 30 very differently than the Hebrew text actually says. So let's read verses 29 and 30, and and then we're going to ask a question, what's possible and what's impossible here? Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed them there. Verse 30, so Jacob called the place, he could have called it, I don't know what's going on. He could have called it, what the heck is this kind of place. He could have called this a spooky nightmare place. (laughs) But he called it, what does your Bible say? Peniel. 
which means the face of God. And here's the explanation. It is because I saw, I saw what? Yeah. I saw God face to face. And yet my life was spared. I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Oh, this is interesting, isn't it? So who was this man? And was he a man? Or was he an angel? Or? Now, the Aramaic translations of the Targum change the words. And in verse 30, they translate it this way, I have seen angels of God face to face. The Hebrew says, I have seen God face to face. But the Aramaic translations of the Targum say, I have seen angels of God face to face. And there's a reason why they do that, why they make that translation. The reason is they don't think it's possible. They've already concluded that God is invisible and he has no corporeity, no physicality, no way of being embodied. And so they think the scripture is defective or wrong and needs to be corrected. And it turns out if you've already figured it out how everything is supposed to work, you've decided for yourself what's possible and what's impossible, and that changes how you read the scriptures. And you may not be able to see what's in there and believe it. You may have a red light going on where you look at the text and you can't see the text anymore. You can only imagine what it should be because it can't be what it says. But Jacob, according to the Torah, put it this way, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Now that's very interesting because it's possible to see angels and your life not be in jeopardy. It happened on many occasions. But there was a clear understanding that if you saw the unmediated glory and holiness of the radiant God, you would not survive. That no human being could survive that. And so Jacob is saying something like this, I saw God face to face, but he was cloaked in some way that I was spared. My life was spared. I survived this. Verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So we have to ask, what kind of appearance was this? Was it a vision or a dream? Not according to the text. It was an actual appearance of someone, a physical presence. And to make that concrete to us, it explains that when the hip was touched and wrenched out of socket, it was real. Jacob woke up and he was lame 
where he had not been before. And so this helps us get some details correct. This is describing a very unusual situation. However, imagine you're a person who believes it's impossible for God to be physically present. He cannot enter into the physical universe and be present. He's the God of eternity, yes. He's the God of heaven, yes. He's the invisible God for sure, but he's not able to come down into this earth and be physically present. If that's how you understand God, then you have to change the meanings of these texts. You have to explain that you don't really believe what the scripture says, you believe what the Targum says. You don't believe what Jacob said he experienced, you believe what Ankylos said he must have experienced. So you can ask yourself this question, what do you think is possible? What do you think is impossible? Do you believe that it's possible for God to physically manifest himself in this time-space world? If you think no, then you have to explain this passage differently than the text explains it. But if you think it is possible, uh-oh, look out. Now that reminds me of an experience I had. I've told you about this on a number of occasions, but I, I had lunch with an Orthodox rabbi. We were introduced by a mutual friend uh, who wasn't Jewish, but liked Jewish things and Jewish people and the Messianic movement. And he thought it'd be interesting that his Orthodox rabbi friend and his Messianic rabbi friend would meet together. He thought that would be <laughs> at least curious, if not interesting. And so we're together and we, we get through the pleasantries very quickly. And the Orthodox rabbi says to me, you know, I can understand why our friend believes Jesus is the Messiah, because, you know, he's a goy. <laughs> he's Gentile. And then he looks at me in this Jewish pleading way, but how can you? You're a Jew. How can you believe this? How can you believe Jesus is the Messiah? And I just looked at him, I said, it's even worse than that. <laughs> and I said, I not only believe he's the Messiah, I believe he's Adonai. <laughs> if he could have jumped out of his skin, I think he would have. But he thought, he thought I was Meshuggah, I thought he was crazy. And he said, that, that's impossible. And I said, are you sure it's impossible? And he didn't have an answer. So it came out something like this. Uh, um, uh, 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 well, and I asked him a, a question about it. And then I said, you know, if it's impossible, then you, sir, have discovered the one thing God cannot do. He cannot come down to this earth and take on human form. 
So you're saying to me that's impossible for God. And his answer got much more articulate. It was, uh, well, um, uh. <laughs> and, and then he said, I'm not saying it's impossible. And so I just smiled. I said, be careful. Be really careful because everything that you said before is based on it being impossible. So if it's not impossible, then it's possible. And if it's possible, the question is, is it true or not true? And I said, you've opened a very dangerous door for yourself. And I smiled. I was enjoying this meal more than he was. You can dismiss a lot of things when you say it's impossible. That reminded me of an experience I had shortly after Sandy and I got married. We had a friend visiting with us, and he and I enjoyed the sport of arguing. <laughs> how, how many of you are like competitive arguers? You enjoy it. Just, it's fun. It's, it's a pastime. It's, <clears throat> and I don't know about you, but I, I love to argue about anything. And I could take either side. That was okay with me on certain things. I cannot explain why it happened, but my friend made this statement. Jesus cannot be the Messiah. And he was a nominal Episcopalian. By that I mean he was raised in an Episcopal family, but he was nominal. In name only was he Episcopalian. So he took the position, Jesus cannot be the Messiah. And I'm not even sure why he took that position. I'm not even sure how it all came up. I thought I could win this argument. It hasn't even gotten very far. I have a way. And so I said to him, it's not a question of possibility. It's a question of fact. If he is the Messiah, it doesn't matter what you think. He is. And if he's not the Messiah, it doesn't matter what you think. He's not. So possibility has nothing to do with it. The only thing that matters is the fact. And he couldn't rebut that. And I thought, I win. I win the argument. Now, here's the problem. I didn't believe my own argument. But it opened a door for me. Because now... I had, I had actually held his position. <laughs> and Sandy knows so clearly that I did. I held the position impossible, not even worth entertaining, nothing to think about here. But now I was haunted but tormented <laughs> by this question, is he or isn't he? And there's a moment when you can protect yourself from very important questions by just saying it's impossible. And you can examine for yourself whether that's how you're approaching the text right now. And if you said, you know what, this could not be about what it says it's about. It couldn't be about God wrestling. It could not be about God showing up face to face. If you've already decided it's impossible, then it's not a matter of, 
of anything else. It's not a matter of evidence. It's not a matter of other interpretations. It's you've already ruled out everything. And it's just important to be honest with yourself. How are you approaching this? Now let's go to Genesis 35, another appearance of the Lord. Starting in verse 9. And we are going to see a, an important an important appearance here, and I want you to, to understand this appearance in a certain way, and that is this is another appearance, but it's a commentary on the prior appearances. Starting in verse 9, after Jacob arrived from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again. Let's say that word again. Again. And why does it say again? It wants you to connect. You see, it doesn't want you to think of this as an isolated incident. It wants you to connect it with other prior appearances. God appeared to him and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Yaakov, but you will be called Yaakov no longer. Your name will be Yisrael. So if Jacob was wondering, who, who told me that? Here's the answer. God told him that. Thus, he named him Israel. God further said to him, I am El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed a group of nations, will come from you. Kings will be descended from you. Moreover, the land which I gave to Abraham and Yitzchak, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. So that goes back to the appearance of God at, in the dream of Jacob's ladder. So this is God's commentary on the prior appearances, both in a dream and in the wrestling experience, God is saying, I am the Lord. And I'm the one who did the talking. Then verse 13. And verse 13 is so difficult. It says, then God went up from him there where he had spoken with him. It's so difficult because the language means this. And then God went vertically up. It'd be so much easier if it just said, then God left him. And there are other passages where it says God departed, but in this case, it said God went up. It goes on, Yaakov set up a standing stone in the place where he had spoken with him, a stone pillar, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the place where God spoke with him Bethel. So it was in a concrete place that God spoke to him. God appeared, and then God went up from him there. This reminded me of another occasion where exactly the same uh, kind of incident is described. It's, it's in Genesis 17. Verse 22, and it says, when God had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. And that connected with this thought. Do you remember when Moses was out on Sinai and the Lord said, come up to me on Sinai and he comes up and then God comes down and stands next to Moses. And you got to say, well, what's going on? God's coming down. And God stands next to Moses, and while he's standing there and Moses is in awe, 
the Lord standing next to Moses with physicality and presence speaks and the Lord goes past him. The Lord's standing and the Lord's passing by at the same time. It's awesome, isn't it? But if you're Moses, you got to be saying, what the heck is going on here? The answer is God. God's going on here. You might not even say heck in a situation like that. (laughs) You might say, heavens? (laughs) What's happening? (laughs) That reminded me. I'm I'm bringing you into the inner workings of your rabbi's mind. (laughs) That reminded me of a description in Luke chapter 24, verse 51. After Yeshua came up from the grave, and he appeared to his disciples, and he's blessing them, and it says, Yeshua left them and was taken up into heaven. So Yeshua goes up from them, but the same author, Luke, writes in Acts chapter 1 with more detail. So if you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Yeshua, the resurrected Yeshua, is talking to his disciples, and he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after Yeshua said this, they watched as he was taken up and a cloud hid him from their sight. So, you know, like, what is with this God that he does these things? He should be more tame. He should be domesticated. You know what people want? They want God in a box. The same God they don't believe can appear in earth, they want to put in a box. God can only do these things. He can't do these other things. He should do what we expect him to do. He should be a sophisticated God. He understands, because he's God, our human nature, so he should tell us stuff better. And he should do stuff better than he does. But if you think like that, you're not thinking according to the scriptures. Because the scriptures tell us that God cannot be managed by human beings. He's the Lord. So here's the scene. They're watching as Yeshua is taken up and then a cloud is hiding them from their sight. They're all, you know, in a state of awe because he's resurrected from the dead. They're in a state of some kind of disturbance because he says, I'm going to go back to heaven so that I can send the Holy Spirit to you because what needs to happen next requires the Holy Spirit. You cannot be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, or to the uttermost parts of the world without my Holy Spirit. So it's been nice, but I got to go. And then... He starts rising in the air. And all the guys are like, whoa. (laughs) 
what is going on here? They are, it says they're looking intently into the sky. It's like, I think I still see him. <laughs> they're looking intently into the sky as he was going. So you got to get this. Having a conversation, it's like, whoa, whoa, oh my, where'd he go? Ah, oh. and they're all in a group. Ah, oh. and then suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Now, this I think could be angels. Angels who look like men, but they dress in white because they know the dress code for angels. <laughs> and they don't want us to be confused, right? And this is what they see, what they say. You could translate it in a nice way, men of Galilee. Or you could translate it like, you know, like, hey, Galilee guys. Why do you stand there looking into the sky? And they're thinking, are you nuts? Yeshua was just right here. And then in front of our eyes, he was like, that's why. And this is what they say. This same Yeshua, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And of course, they could have been like the Orthodox rabbi. You said, nah, that's impossible. Or they could have been like Ankylos or one of the others who said, no, that couldn't be possible. It had to mean something else. But it turns out they thought that's exactly what it meant. What it says is what it meant. And they thought this Yeshua is Adonai who has taken on human form and now he's, his human body was killed and his human body was resurrected and his, his glorified resurrected body actually went up. And we were just getting used to the idea that he'd come down. And now he's gone back up. And he's going to come again and come back down. And who's going to believe this? Well, we do. So I want to encourage you. There are some people who think it's impossible for God to take on human form and, and be in this world. I was such a person. And I know many others who, who were in that condition. I remember a Holocaust survivor in Budapest. And he had this idea, you know, that it would be good to go to the Holocaust group that, that we had and just participate. But over the course of several years, the leader of the Holocaust survivors group, Kati Shua, was a little bit frustrated. All of the members of that group were Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, every one of them. Almost all of them were professionals, highly educated, uh, doctor, dentist, architect like this guy engineers, professors. And the only one who wasn't Jewish was the leader of the group, Kati, who was gypsy, a gypsy woman. 
And so for several years, she was leading this group and she really wanted something more to happen. And so one day during the group, she prayed uh, and called on God in a way that only Hungarian Jews do. She called him Urakevelo, which means something like eternal God or God Almighty, you know, forever. And only the Jews say that, the Christians never say that. And she just said, Urakevelo, come. That's all she prayed. And something happened that I'll describe, and you can say, nah, that's not possible. But here's what happened. The Holy Spirit came, and the Lord fell on the Holocaust survivors, and one after another of them understood Yeshua was the Messiah. They got filled with the Holy Spirit, and they became disciples of Yeshua all in a moment. It was wonderful. And this particular guy, who was the architect, he had good chutzpah and a good sense of humor. And so he decided he was going to tell all his Jewish friends that Yeshua was Messiah. And he knew what he was getting himself into. And so some of his friends said, well, that's your opinion, but it's impossible. And you know what he would say to them? In Hungarian, he would say, no, it's a fact. And with all of his joyful chutzpah, he would say to his Jewish friends, it's a fact. And they were left to deal with it. So I want to encourage you. You may be in contact with people who think it's impossible for Yeshua to be the Messiah because they've already decided it's impossible. They haven't examined any evidence. They haven't thought about it. But they've already decided God cannot come down to this earth and be present in this earth. He cannot take on any kind of body or corporeity. He cannot be physically present in this earth. And that's their opinion that will influence everything that they read and decide in the scriptures, about the scriptures. And if you can just tell them, it's a fact. This is a fact. Some of those people will be like the architect. Some of them will be like me, who say, maybe it is a fact. And then come to the conclusion, it is a fact. And so I say, look at me. Look at me. I was one of those people who said, impossible. And then the door opened in my own understanding. Maybe it's not a question of impossible, it's a question of fact. So what are the facts? And I think if you can learn to communicate with chutzpah, but being very direct, don't beat around the bush, don't, don't you know, like spoon feed people when they need to hear the truth. <laughs> there are times for it when people are babies, spoon feed them. But when they're adults and they can think straight, um, give them something challenging to think about. And I tell you what, some of those people will open their hearts and become believers simply because you open the door. You open the door to their thinking. And if you're one of those people who said it's all impossible, look out because God knows how to open that door for you. And if you've just ruled it out because you've said it's impossible, that's your thinking that has defined everything. 
And I want to encourage you, reconsider and ask this question. Maybe it's not impossible, but is it a fact? And if it's a fact and you're saying, well, I could accept it if I could see God doing such things in the Torah, I would say, welcome to the Torah and let it blow open your mind and all the strongholds that you had. I believe that God can use you. Don't try to argue with people using just brute force. Don't try to beat people into agreement. It won't work. But I can tell you this, if you can ask a question or you can raise a question that they hadn't considered, if you can open a door to think about something that they had not been able to think about, God can do a work through that that you can never do yourself. But every Jew who's had such a door opened in their own heart and mind will be grateful again to you that you had the chutzpah and you had the good sense and you had the humor and you had the Bible knowledge in order to open the door for them. So that's my prayer for you, that God would use you in this way. Let's close. And parents, those of you who have children, please go get them. We can't keep them. You need them. And just a reminder, parents, at 12.30, it's always your responsibility to get your kids. And at 12.31, we hand out puppies that have not been paper trained for them to take home. That is our joke <clears throat> or our promise. We're not sure which. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Join us for coffee and fellowship next door.